Well, hello and welcome back to another, yet another episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro talk show that just about addresses anything and everything having to do with the baby boomer years, a few years before that, a few years after that, but basically we're out here just to serve you, our fellow baby boomers. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And we have an exciting show. We love those road shows that we do, those road trips, Smitty. Oh, yeah, Mike. They're a lot of fun. Nothing like getting out of the studio and getting out with an exciting story and coming back and presenting it to you. And we are just so honored to be able to present this story because it wraps up into one neat little package all the things we love, that being uh, radio, history of radio, collectibles uh, regarding radio, even, in this case, the very very, very historical site that involves a radio station right here in San Diego where we are based out of. Smitty, wasn't that a great, great road trip? It was a fun trip. It was close by and we got to see a lot of neat stuff and we got to visit with one of our good friends and it's going to be a neat topic. You know, Mike, we were talking earlier before we began recording, the history of communication in this country really is has been lost to a great degree, radio and television. And whenever you find something that still is around from the good old days, it's neat to go look at it and kind of immerse yourself in that time period from the past. Well, and it's so true. I guess it's a cliche or something, but I've heard it for years and years that you have to remember where you've come from in order to know where you're going to. And what better example than this story that we are about to present? This is actually, folks, if you're in the Southern California area, you will have known, especially a few years ago or even today, one of the high-powered AM stations that is left to remain serving Southern California is Kogo. That's AM 600 here in San Diego. Kogo has an extensive history from here in San Diego. They were the powerhouse. They've actually gone through all formats of radio broadcasting, mm-hmm. and they continue to be on the cutting edge of news reporting here in San Diego and Southern California. The Kogo transmitter site that Smitty and I visited was actually erected in 1948. And it's probably, as you say, Smitty, it's probably one of the few transmitter sites that remain standing today. And a lot of the site is starting to be taken away. A lot of uh, parts that were important to the site from 1948 right on up through the years are now being disassembled and moved on. And and newer, more digital, more state-of-the-art equipment is going in its place. But, Smitty, uh, what can you tell us about that? I was too busy videotaping. I was getting lost in all the equipment rooms. It was uh, was like a candy shop for a radio collector. Exactly. It was fascinating. Well... We're going to talk to someone who is over there removing a very important piece of history from that building. I think we won't say a whole lot because the, the interview that we that we did with our friend Scott Rice is going to tell just about everything. But he's in the process of removing the transmitter from the building, and he's going to tell us why that's happening and what the reasons are behind all this. And probably should just let the uh, the interview roll, Mike, and uh, let it speak for itself. Okay, why don't we take it away? And by the way, uh, listeners, if you're interested in seeing some of the sites there contained in that transmitter site, uh, we did take a lot of photos. We actually took some video, which we will produce later into a, a smaller version of what you're about to hear, a smaller timed version. But we do have some still shots that we'll be happy to post up on our Facebook site. So give a look to those, but... Uh, We're going to go right into the interview with Scott Rice, our good friend, right now. Well, the history of radio communication is very dear to our hearts, as our Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight listeners know. 
And we were talking earlier about the fact that in this country, unfortunately, the the history of broadcast communication is sadly not preserved as well as it should be. And that's particularly true in the case of radio and television also, but in radio in particular, which goes back so many years. Today, we are at the transmitter site of radio station KOGO in San Diego. The reason we're here is because this is a historic site. This site was built in 1948, and up until this moment, up until now, it still has the original broadcast transmitter that was installed here in 1948, 65 years ago. That transmitter is going to be removed from this facility very shortly. We'll find out the reason being when we talk to our guest in just a moment. But we wanted to come here and show you what this place looks like, show you what an old broadcast transmitter from the old days looks like. And we're here with our guest, who is not only an expert in this field, but he also happens to be a very dear friend of mine and a very good friend of Mike Bragg's, Scott Rice. Scott, welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. Well, thank you, Gilbert. It's a pleasure to finally get to be on your show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. This is a broadcast transmitter site. This is the site where the radio station transmits from. Exactly, and this one is more than just that because of the way it was designed and built. When it was built, it was built by Tom Sharp, the former owner of Airfan Radio, which was the parent company of Kogo. Tom Sharp, as San Diegans may know, was the founder of Sharp Healthcare. He actually sold the Kogo stations, or the KFSD stations at that point, because she was originally KFSD from 1926 until 1961. He sold the stations in about 1957 and used that money to fund his health care system. Well, he built this to be his version of a Columbia Square for San Diego, a temple of broadcasting in San Diego. It was meant to be more than just a transmitter facility. It had had a full-functioning bomb shelter in it. It had a full-functioning studio in the basement. It had a production facility on hand for cutting all the transcriptions from the NBC radio network directly from Radio City up in Hollywood, which was unheard of at the time. This facility had all the amenities of a, of a true NBC O&O, but was owned by an individual. And the facility is built out of nine-inch thick concrete and is truly Art Deco. It was designed in 1939. It was the site of the original Emerald Hills Country Club and Golf Course. She is truly a remarkable facility, and uh, but she was not allowed to be finished until 1948 due to the Choyas Heights uh, Tower site because they were worried about re-radiation and other factors that 600 could have had on the uh, on the low-frequency transmitters over there. Now, the Choyas Heights facility, for our listeners who are not familiar with it, was a Navy transmitting facility that was located very close to this location. Yes, just right across the highway, basically, and it was three large towers that had been built in the, I believe, the 19-teens or something, something like, like that. that yeah. They were absolutely magnificent towers. It is such a... a Shame that they weren't saved. That, that's another piece of history that should have been saved. But big corporations now have started buying these stations, such as Clear Channel, CBS, Cumulus. And when they get these stations, they just see the old transmitters as just being just junk. And they carried so much of this station's history. They were so much a part of the history of KFSD Kogo, that transmitter was, because it was here from 48, and she was on the air until 82 as the main transmitter. During that time period, you had... Truman, Eisenhower, you had uh, Kennedy, you had the, the Kennedy election, you had the Kennedy assassination come through these towers, you had the Jack Benny show, you had uh, the moonwalk, you had all these amazing, amazing historical things that happened, and 
Candace D. Kogo herself was an NBC affiliate for San Diego, and she was an early one for the blue, and then she moved over to the red when uh, the red and the blue split up uh, when the uh, antitrust case happened, and she became a, a, an NBC red. She was an NBC affiliate until about 82 when she got sold. I guess that's the thing that I think about when I come here, and I've been here on, on numerous occasions with you, the history that went through this facility. Now, there's three letters that are associated with this facility that we cannot get away from. NBC is one, but RCA. This facility was originally uh, specced out by RCA, right? Yes, it was a complete RCA facility. Only a few pieces of the original facility that was at the U.S. Grant. When KFEW, KFSD signed on the air from the U.S. Grant, she was originally all Western Electric. There's a couple of equalizers, a few other devices that were brought over, but she is built from the ground up for the most part with all RCA. Uh, the one kilowatt Western Electric transmitter was removed from the, the grant because she was bought right before uh, World War II broke out, moved over here and became a backup. But that's one of the very few things that got saved from there. There was a, an RCA FM transmitter, which became KFST FM 94.1 in 1948, San Diego's first FM. It signed on the air from this facility and was on the Northeast Tower, which is where 106.5 is today. And at one time, I guess that the KFSD call letters were on the uh, were on the towers at one time. Neon call letters were on the towers. But all that's been scrapped out as well because back in the, uh, I believe it was the late 80s or mid-80s or so, uh, they had some tower structure issues with the towers because they hadn't been maintained extremely well. What we're focusing on today, of course, not only this whole facility, but we're specifically focusing on the on the RCA transmitter that is here. This is the original transmitter that was installed in this facility. It's been here since 1948. It's now in the process of being removed. You're removing it, and you own this transmitter. How did that happen? Clear Channel Communications owns the station now, and back in 2000. Uh, nine, they decided to donate every transmitter that was not on the air to this fund for a college radio fund uh, scholarship. And I couldn't get a clear definition. If it didn't sell, would they have to remove it from the building and destroy it, or what would have to be done? So I bid $100 on it and bought the transmitter. So at that point, I became the owner of it. And at that time, I was working at another Clear Channel facility in Texas. And when I moved back, then they required me to go ahead and pull her out. But they made the mistake of getting rid of her and thinking absolutely nothing of her value. In that same auction, the KGB Collins that was on top of the Pickwick Hotel got sold. The KGB RCA 5T, uh, a two-cabinet 5-kilowatt, was also sold. That was the Boss Radio Transmitter, as is affectionately known. And a bunch of other transmitters that have been just wonderful boxes, they got rid of. This transmitter, the RCA, which now belongs to you, this is still a viable transmitter. This could go on the air if it was all put together. It could go on the air and be used for a radio station. Up until two months ago, she could still power up. She had one problem with a blower that I needed to change out, but she could have powered up and been Kogo one more time, signed on the air, and went to full 5 kilowatts because all the tubes had been rebuilt in the late 90s to make sure that she was still a viable full-power backup transmitter. And the big thing that's really special about these boxes, the plate-modulated transmitters, is that as opposed to a solid-state transmitter, which is what the new ones are, the tube ones could load into a coat hanger, I mean almost literally into the fence or into the coat hanger. So if the towers all of a sudden got destroyed by storm or by structural issues, 
it could sign on the air and have no problem and make full power. But a modern transmitter could not run by any stretch of the imagination. But this one could. And also one of the neat things that RCA did is when the federal government was doing nuclear testing, they went and they they had RCA come out and set up a full radio station, a tower, a transmitter facility, and everything else, and it got hit by the shock wave of the nuclear blast. And from my understanding, the tower broke over, and they went out there, and that was the only thing that happened. The board had fallen off the desk. They replaced the tubes, put the board back on, fired it off, made it run, and the transmitter, a 5F from my understanding, was fully functional. That's amazing that it would take uh, the the shockwave from a nuclear bomb and it could be all be fired back up again. I guess that's a testimony to the build quality of this of this instrument. For those of you who uh, aren't familiar with this type of a transmitter, we'll have some pictures on the website. But Scott, tell us roughly the dimensions and the weight of this unit for those who don't know much about this. Well, she's not like most transmitters. She is about twenty feet long. She's exactly seven feet tall and about uh, six feet deep. Uh, is the main cabinet, and then the modulation transformer is about uh, about four feet wide, three feet deep, and about three feet tall, and the plate transformer is very similar to it, and uh, the total shipping weight for her was ten thousand pounds. Wow, <laughs> she's not a light uh, she's not a light old girl at all, but. Luckily, though, we've been able to study the old paperwork of how to assemble it. So I'm just going in reverse of how the assembly instructions went together from RCA. Because RCA wrote the finest manuals ever written, ever. That company went to the nth degree to make sure to define the transmitter in every way possible to make it easy to work on and easy for anyone involved to order parts or do anything with her. And I've had lots of practice on dismantling transmitters now. And uh, so she's not really that difficult. It's just going to be the final removal is going to take several people now. And I was going to ask you, you have had experience in removing other transmitters, albeit smaller transmitters, but you've had experience in disconnecting them, removing them, and getting them ready to leave a facility. I've got it down now as as Mike DeRoe, legendary transmitter remover de jour, would, uh, would say. I, I've got experience now where I can pull out a one-kilowatt Collins or RCA have it disconnected from the power of the antenna, and have it in the truck ready to go within an hour. That's amazing. <laughs> because it's just, it, there's a system that you just go pull everything out. This one's much more difficult, especially since uh, it has a wall built around it. And that's the next big thing that has to come down is the wall has to come down before any more can be done to her. We were talking to you earlier before we began recording this that this transmitter comes apart in a modular fashion. Yes. Uh, the PA cabinet, it's one separate cabinet. Then the audio cabinet is actually a fake cabinet. The back wall comes down, and then it just leaves the supervisory and modulator cabinet to itself and then the uh, main PA cabinet. And then once you remove those, then the main frame of the transmitter is exposed where so you can go and pull it out. Mm -hmm. uh, but... You have to pull down the meter panel, the doors, and all that. But she is modular to a certain degree. Not quite like a Collins or one of those to where it's actually separate cabinets completely. But she is modular for her time period. Mm -hmm. And you just disconnect all of her terminal strips, and then it separates each cabinet away from her. Was this transmitter ahead of its time when it was constructed, or was it uh, typical of that type of construction for, for broadcast transmitters during that era? She was the finest built transmitter of her era. There's nothing that could even come close to it. The Collinses 
and the Western Electrics could not touch this box. RCA actually sold more of these transmitters than they sold anything else because right after the war, there was a big push for everyone to power up to 5 kilowatts. And RCA had a special deal. If you had a license, we would finance you. And they sold more of these transmitters because of that and because of the quality. You look around at her now, the way that the machining is, all the wire lacing, everything in her is just the top quality. There is no expense spared on this transmitter. And when you look at that, if you had to go build that transmitter today, if you had to go make those stampings and build it today just like they did, that transmitter would cost you about $1.2 million. Wow. And to think that they all just want to be trashed, that, that, that these broadcast companies want to trash these magnificent pieces. And she was designed by one of the greatest designers of Art Deco in the world, John Vassos. John worked for RCA and also for other people, but John designed the first RCA cameras, the first RCA color cameras, the first RCA color television, the CT100, the Merrill, which, which you have, Gilbert. Uh, the RCA transmitters he designed, just about every one of them, and this one he actually had a special place in his heart for, and he named it the train. The train. I was going to ask you about that. Because it looks like a train speeding by an Art Deco train like the old Streamliners. And it just, it is a beautiful, beautiful piece of art that he created. And from my understanding, he also was the one that developed the RCA color umber gray for the things. Mm -hmm. And umber gray was used for their microphones and everything else. And John just did magnificent work. He was a true genius. Mm -hmm. He was one of the fathers of modern Art Deco that ushered it in. He had designed the uh, first television transmitters that people have seen the pictures of at the Empire State with the sweeping chrome lines, the magnificence of that. And there's nothing like the Vasos designs. And this is one of the few pieces left. Scott, how many of these RCA BT5F did RCA make? Do we know how many they made or sold? We think there was about 1,500 of them made. And that's quite a few when you think about transmitters, because that would have just about taken up every 5 kilowatt in the United States at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They basically sold their weight in them, because right after the war, there was a whole lot of 250 waters that got to upgrade to a kilowatt. So Collins actually got the jump on that and got their, their 20 Vs sold. Um, then a lot of the uh, 1 kilowatts got to upgrade to 5. And a lot of the 5 kilowatts got to upgrade to 50. So RCA sold all the 50s and 5s, and Collins went and sold all the little 1s. Okay. But uh, there was about 1,200 of them, we believe. And there's two complete ones still left. Just two? Two out of 1,500. The rest of them have all been either partially scrapped or completely scrapped. But it's the KFSD Kogo box, this one here, and then the one that was at KRKD for many years in Los Angeles, the 1150. It was saved by a fellow collector by the name of Brad Hollander. Mike DeRoe got involved and put a stop to that one being destroyed, and Brad took it. He had a large warehouse up in uh, Nevada, and he has that one up there, along with a beautiful uh, Collins 5 kilowatt. Mm -hmm. But his is close to being fully functional again, mm -hmm. um, very close, but his is not in quite as good a shape as this one. This one is the pristine 5F of all of them that are still in existence. The rest of them, though, are not quite complete. And it's a shame, really, that there were so many of them, and there's only two of them that we know of that, uh, that are still in existence. And this one is in wonderful shape, and I've heard stories, we've heard stories about uh, the engineers who were working here at that time, that they actually used to use car wax on it and polish it. And it is a beautiful scheme on it. it it's got chrome, it's got the two-tone umber gray, and, of course, the big RCA logo, that, which we affectionately call the meatball, is there. And, again, for those of you who are listening to us, we will have pictures 
of this whole site and the transmitter on our Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight page. But now that is true. The engineers here really took good care of this transmitter. She was well-loved. She was very, very well-loved, even up until just recently. Uh, up until the time that I took ownership of it, the engineers here would occasionally come out and polish her. I know that I even spent a few late nights out here waxing her uh, just because she deserved it. She deserved it. And for many of the years, one of the reasons why they had to take care of it so well was because they had nothing else to rely on as a backup, so they made sure to maintain it. It wasn't until uh, the uh, late 90s that a full solid-state backup actually showed up out here, and that was only bought because Kogo became the Padre station once again. And, uh, in fact, what led to them getting solid-state transmitters is that there was a Collins 5 kilowatt out here that blew up, and they couldn't fix it. So... The RCA signed on the air one last time of the call letters KOGO and was News Radio 600 KOGO one more time. And uh, they were running the Padres at that point, and the Padres ran through there one last time on the RCA. And that was when again? Uh, 1997, 98, somewhere around there. But she she signed on one last time, uh, and she was the very first Padre station that RCA transmitter was. Uh, the Padres were on here when they first came to San Diego and mm-hmm. were first formed here. Mm-hmm. And this was the uh, Padre Station was that transmitter. Well, I remember, and I've told you this before in, our, in some of our personal talks, that uh, I remember this station when I was a kid. I remember hearing the Padres back in the 70s and all those programs and kind of near and dear to my heart, the NBC 50th anniversary series, which uh, was aired in 1976. All that came through this transmitter. Every bit of it came through her. And people still have mentioned to me when I was here as an engineer at Kogo Radio that they don't know what happened to the, to the fidelity of the station, the fidelity and the coverage of the station. Now, I don't see how the coverage would have altered, but the fidelity would absolutely be different. That transmitter, because of the tubes and the plate modulation, would give a much warmer, better sound for the station than a harsh solid-state transmitter with solid-state processing. And that's typical of obviously of tube equipment that has that warmer uh, uh, fuller sound absolutely and she is no no stranger to it she was a magnificent sounding transmitter and one of these days though she'll get to she'll get to sing again you speak about this transmitter in very loving terms and you do care about this transmitter Tell us, first of all, what are your plans when you finish dismantling this transmitter? And again, it's being dismantled very systematically so that it can be reassembled. What are your plans to do with this transmitter? Well, I have been taking her apart over the course of the last several months, very slowly, because I do want for her to go back on the air again. And the plan is basically to put her in storage until I can either get a permanent place for me and her here in San Diego or for somehow to be able to get a hold of another building to move her to so that others can enjoy her. I want for her to live again and for others to be able to enjoy her and to see her magnificence because we'll never see the level of engineering of that of that device. We will never, ever see that quality craftsmanship and the greatness that was America. When you look at that, you see America, and you see how great she was. America today isn't the same America, and that's even shown with the transmitter. You look from one side of this room to the other, you see a white box with no personality, and that's Kogo today. You look across the room and you see something that is absolutely magnificent to look at and is astonishing and breathtaking, and that was the America of 1948, and that was the KFSD of 1948. Just a breathtaking piece, and she has to be around for the next several generations. 
She has to because she's survived this law. And that's what I'm going to make sure that she does. Well, that's wonderful, Scott. And kind of as a, as a fellow electronics junkie as you are, there's nothing quite like seeing the glow of the tubes, which uh, with the newer solid-state transmitters, of course, they're completely devoid of that. The older ones, you have the windows, as this one does, and you can see the actual tubes glowing inside. It's just, and our friends out there who are ham radio operators who enjoy vintage gear will acknowledge this. There's just something neat about seeing the tubes. That it's almost like the, like the transmitter is alive. She does come to life. That's why I call her a she, because she, she's got a life. She's got a very special aura about her. And, you know, I've been able to save many, many Collinses and RCAs over the years, whether in Texas or in San Diego or in other places, and they've all gone into the hands of hams. They're all living on the ham bands and living very fine lives. One of them is at Mike DeRoe's house now, one that I saved literally out of a building that was going to be bulldozed the next day. Wow. Another one uh, I was told ended up with Joe Walsh. I'm not sure about that, but I was told it did, But um, of the Eagles, and it's on his ham band. And, and, uh, but all of them, though, are living wonderful lives on the ham bands and are being treasured by their owners. Well, that's good, Scott, and uh, I think that because they're large items, in particular, this one's a very large item, but even the, the, some of the Collinses and, and those smaller transmitters, they're large, so they, you wouldn't exactly find them in the typical electronic guy's house who might have radios or TVs. This is kind of a specialized thing. This is something that a ham would have to have, and they'd have to have it dedicated just for them. Uh, even the one-kilowatt boxes are about the size of your refrigerator at home. Right, exactly. And they require a lot of power, so it's someone that wants the romance. And sadly, in San Diego, I think that there's only one tube, one-kilowatt box left. And uh, this, though, is the oldest transmitter still in its original install in all of California now. And that's the significance of why we wanted to come here, and we wanted to acknowledge the fact that this transmitter, original to this building from 1948, still here, but you're making sure that it's safely removed, it's going to be safely stored, and one day it'll go back on the air somewhere. Somewhere she will be back on the air. We're not Probably not on the 600 frequency, but the neat thing is about this transmitter is that we've got parts from the KCBQ transmitter that was destroyed. Mm-hmm. So KCBQ's history, a little bit of it's going to be preserved with this because of Kogo getting all the parts. So as long as she's alive, a little piece of KCBQ also lives as well. Well, that's wonderful, Scott. We've certainly enjoyed talking to you. I want to thank you for joining us on the show, talking to us about the RCA transmitter and this whole facility, and we just want to thank you for the work that you're doing to help save this wonderful box. Well, thank you, Gilbert, for coming up here and seeing the RCA, and you've always been a friend to her, and I'm always glad to have you come up here and come see her. Well, I'll miss her when she's gone from here, but at least we know that she'll be safe. She will be, and she'll be safe for many years to come. Thank you, Scott. Wow, what a good story, and what a pleasure to be able to produce that story and bring it to you, our listeners. We had such a good time up there at the Kogo Transmitter site and taking the tour with Scott Rice and hearing some of the stuff, some of the pedigree that is in the background that people don't really know about, but some of the the work that went into putting that original transmitter there at the site in 1948, some of the equipment there, it's almost, it actually is, it's like walking back in time, especially radio history. You have the civil defense bunker during the Cold War mm-hmm. that was dug in there, and some of the old rations and civil defense water tanks are still in there, and it was just just like 
going into a big time capsule of radio, and it was such a pleasure doing that story and and watching you, Smitty, and Scott Rice uh, go over that. And I I think I I almost saw you get a little wispy eyed there. <laughs> well, going back into that going back into that time tunnel. Oh yeah. Well, as I had mentioned, when I was a kid, I used to listen to Kogo and uh, remembering just a lot of that programming that went through that station, through that transmitter, through that facility. It's just very nostalgic to go back and see that. And, you know, when I was a little kid looking up, maybe driving by with my dad by the freeway and seeing those two towers and wondering what that was and wondering what was up there and who was there and what were they doing. Now we know what they were doing up there. We know what they were doing. And this, uh, thank goodness for this interview, because even long after that site is gone and like anything else, in time it will probably be replaced or somewhat altered, but we've captured it for the listeners and for ourselves and for the archives, just like we've captured a lot of the interview with people who have made such an impact in the baby boomer years in the history of radio communication, TV, and we're just so happy to bring that to you. We're going to wrap this show up now. Again, it's been a pleasure to bring this to you, as well as all the other things that we bring in over 100 episodes of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight, and part of the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. We love emails. Please keep us in mind. Tap us an email if you think about it. Things you like, things you'd like to hear. You can contact us by email at galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. We'd love you to be our Facebook friend, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite there on Facebook, galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. Remember, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite, that's S-I-T-E, Dot com. Smitty? Again, we want to thank Scott Rice for his time and for showing us around and for his work in preserving this piece of broadcast history. Okay, folks, thanks again for listening in, and we'll be talking to you again real soon right here on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. Mm-hmm.